Opposition is coming. It's a guarantee. Last week, we saw the work of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem begin. And everything was going great. It was all good. You know, the people were all united, arm in arm, working together to rebuild. The sun was shining. Birds were chirping. Everything was going well. But, come on. You knew that wouldn't last long. Trouble was lurking in the shadows. And this is all throughout the Bible. All throughout the Bible. Jesus is baptized. The Spirit descends. The Father says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then what? Next thing you know, Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. Likewise, Elijah experiences a miraculous triumph over the prophets of Baal. Fire comes down from heaven on Mount Carmel. Elijah outruns a chariot. And then in the very next scene, we see Elijah depressed. Isn't that just like our lives? <laughs> full of wins and full of losses. So it should not shock us that in Nehemiah chapter 4, Israel's enemies show up to threaten the rebuild. And make no mistake about it, this is an immediate and serious threat to the rebuild. Let's turn there now. It's Nehemiah chapter 4, and we'll look at verses 1 through 15. Nehemiah, if you have a Bible, it's kind of right there in the middle of the Old Testament. If you don't, it'll be on the screen, and it's also at ljc.life if you want to go there. So we'll look at Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. And this is Nehemiah himself writing. He says, When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from these heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their wall of stones. Verse 4. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So, we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead 
and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also our enemies said, Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall, at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. And what a word this is. We know, Father, we will face such great opposition in our lives. And we are grateful that we have always have your word to turn to. And Father, I know there are many in the room tonight facing opposition and facing difficulty in their lives. And we pray your spirit would be here through these words to bring encouragement and strength to them. And Father, it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so Israel's enemies are furious. They're furious with the progress made on the wall. If you remember, in chapter 2, these same opponents were there, but at that time, they were just kind of a little perturbed. They were a little miffed at what was going on. So they just laughed at it. They just laughed. They said, well, this is stupid. Good luck rebuilding this thing. Good luck to you. But now, that real work has begun to rebuild the wall. And the wall is starting to rise. Well, that changes things. Now the enemies of Israel are enraged. They're furious. And they know they must do something about it and do it quick. The first tactic they use is to taunt the Jews. Uh, but these, this is no empty taunt. These aren't empty words. If you notice in verse 2 that Sanballat gives these taunts in front of an army. <laughs> so he's not standing there by himself. He has his army at his back. And with an army beside him and behind him, he unleashes a verbal assault on Israel so that they know that Sanballat is prepared to escalate the conflict to armed confrontation in order to stop the rebuilding of the walls. And so he tries to discourage and dissuade the Israelites. He wants them to just to stop right where they are, lay down their tools, 
and head home. One commentator says in these first couple of verses that Sanballat belittled their qualities, he derided their ambitions, he mocked their optimism, he lampooned their enthusiasm, and he magnified their problems. And after Sanballat finishes his verbal assault, Tobiah tags in for his turn. So Sanballat hammers Israel for thinking they can finish the work, and then Tobiah comes in and makes fun of the work they've already done. Look at verse 3. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it, would break down their wall of stones. So not only will you never finish the work, but the work you are doing and have done stinks. And one thing that made this verbal abuse so powerful is that it was partly true. It was partly true. This was not a super sophisticated building project. (laughs) It wasn't. The Israelites did not have a ton of resources at this point. They're just coming back from exile, and their city has been burned to the ground. So they don't have a ton of resources. They're just getting by the best that they know how. They're just trying to get by with what they had. And so what their enemies did is the enemies took advantage of that. And they used that truth against them to try to discourage them. Now, our enemy, the devil, tries to discourage us in the same way. He tries to get us off track by making our problems seem huge and our abilities and resources seem small. He makes us think the whole enterprise is a fool's errand. Don't try to rebuild your marriage. You've screwed it up beyond repair. It's too late for that. Don't try to rebuild your career. You're not as talented as you thought you were. Don't try to rebuild your walk with Christ. You're too much of a sinner. And you've tried it a million times before, and it's never worked. Don't try to rebuild Life's Journey Church. It's too big of a task. And you're not up for it. It hurts to hear stuff like that. Why? Because there's some truth to it. That's what hurts. I heard a pastor once say, Discouragement is the sharpest knife in Satan's drawer. He just beats you down with your sins, your failures, and ineptitude. But Spurgeon had a great quote about this. He said, I love when Satan reminds me of my sins because it only reminds me of the blood. The blood that was shed for me to cover all my sins failures, and shortcomings. You see, Israel's enemies might have brought out some hurtful truths. They did. But they completely missed the far greater truth that Israel has a Redeemer. Israel's shortcomings, though they are real, they are 
irrelevant. They're irrelevant. God himself is doing the work of the rebuild. In the same way, God himself is rebuilding your marriage. God himself is rebuilding your spiritual life. God himself is rebuilding Life's Journey Church. Now, before we look to Nehemiah's response to all these insults, I'd like to take a time out here and ask you how you respond in these situations. How do you respond to those who try to tear you down? I'll tell you my tendency. And it's self-justification. I try to justify my actions. So I'll just jump right in and argue with them. I'll tell them all the reasons that they're wrong and all the reasons that I'm right. That's a bad way to respond. That's a bad way to respond. But there are a multitude of bad ways to respond to opposition. You can walk away in shame. You can take your marbles and go home. You can quit. You can make excuses. You can badmouth your opponents. But how does Nehemiah respond? Let's look. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. He says, hear us, O God, for we are despised. <laughs> Nehemiah responds to opposition with prayer. With prayer. Don't you love that? Right in the middle of a heated conversation, he prays. He turns to God. That's an incredible example. But... The content of Nehemiah's prayer should give us some pause. I like that he prayed. <laughs> but look at what he prays. Verses 4 and 5. He says, Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Um, is this how Jesus taught us to pray? Lord, don't forgive our enemies. <laughs> Lord, turn their insults back on their own heads. Lord, give them over as plunder. <laughs> no. No, I don't think so. I told you a few weeks ago that Nehemiah wasn't perfect. Uh, and I do think it was wrong for him to pray like this. Definitely right for him to turn to God in prayer. The prayer, though, not so good. Not so good. But let's give Maya, Nehemiah a little bit of a break here. Remember that Nehemiah is living in a total, under a totally different covenant than we are. Okay? He's living in a totally different covenant. So God was directly tied to the nation of Israel at this time under the old covenant. Uh, and he was tied to them through the covenant he made with Abraham and Abraham's descendants. Okay? And so in that covenant, he promised to bless those that bless Israel and curse those who curse them. So in that context, you can kind of understand why Nehemiah would pray this way. Uh, and his prayer here is actually very similar to several other prayers found in the Old Testament, uh, even by King David. King David prayed 
uh, prayers like this, and it, not just King David, but other Old Testament characters did too. Uh, so one example is Psalm 137, uh, where the psalmist says to the wicked Babylonians, he says, blessed is he who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed is he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Oh, that's pretty intense, don't you think? But it's right there in the Bible, right there in Psalm 137. Blessed is he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. That's what the psalmist prays against the Babylonians. Why does he do that? Well, that's actually what the Babylonians did. The Babylonians, when they were conquering a city, uh, they would go find the infants, grab them by the feet, and dash their brains out on rocks. So the psalmist prays, O Lord, let that happen to them. Let that happen to them. This just further highlights the important interpretive principle. That just what the Bible describes is not necessarily what it prescribes. You see the difference? What the Bible describes is not necessarily what the Bible prescribes. So just because the Bible describes David and Nehemiah and others doing something does not mean you and I should always follow suit. We must take the context into account. And in this particular context, you can at least understand why Nehemiah was praying this way. But you and I should probably not follow his example or the example of Psalm 137. Okay, we're going to jump back to this later. But for now, continuing on, despite this verbal abuse, God remains faithful to Israel. And so Israel continues the work with all their heart. Look at verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. Wasn't that sweet? So did Israel's enemies just head to the house? No. All this did was further infuriate Israel's enemies. They now begin actively plotting how to stop the rebuild. Look at verses 7 through 8. Uh, now the plot begins. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem, stir up trouble against it. Uh, as we'll see in a second, so the enemy's plot here is threefold. Number one, strike fear into Israel. Number, number two, infiltrate Israel to sow division from within. And number three, when Israel is in disarray, sneak in and kill them. This is why unity among believers is so important. Unity among us as a church body is so important. We talked about that last week. We are always being plotted against by our enemy. We must remain unified in defense. There are always wolves lurking around. Always looking to devour us, looking to infiltrate our ranks to sow discord from within. So, we got to circle the wagons. we got to remain unified. Not that we can't disagree, it's fine to disagree. 
on different things, but we have to love each other. We have to still stay arm in arm, even though there might be people next to you who you disagree with on certain things. That's okay. We can still link arm in arm together because we have the same goal in mind. Now, we see here that the enemy, one of his strategies is to disrupt kingdom work is by sowing fear and discord among the brethren, among believers. And unfortunately, here in Nehemiah, it starts to work. Look at verses 10 through 12. It starts to work. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. And once again, how did Nehemiah deal with this situation? He prayed. He prayed. Look at verses 9 and 13. Verse 9. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Verse 13. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. So he prayed, but he also did something else. Nehemiah prayed and took action. He prayed and took action. He didn't just pray and sit on his hands. We must be a people of prayer, yes, but we can't live in the prayer closet. We must be people of action. We must be. It's not enough to talk about reaching Huntsville with the gospel. It's not enough to pray about reaching Huntsville with the gospel. At some point, we have to actually do it. At some point, there needs to be boots on the ground. We must be people of prayer, absolutely, but also people of action. People of action. Okay, so Nehemiah stations people to guard against the attack. And this is a fierce foe. How did Nehemiah inspire the people to stand guard against such a fearsome enemy? Look at verse 14. After I had looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. <laughs> Man, I love that. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. The Lord is our protector. The Lord is our shield, and the Lord will bring the victory. Look at verse 15. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. You catch that? It wasn't Nehemiah's cleverness. It wasn't his leadership ability. That frustrated the work of the enemy. It was God. God had frustrated it. So this should be a little comforting to us. The plans of God's enemies aren't worth the paper they're written on. Do you know there are only two places in the Bible where God laughs? There's only two that we can see. 
Would you like to know what he's laughing at in both cases? The plans of the enemy. In both cases. The plans of the enemy aren't worth the paper they're written on. So, in closing, how should we respond to opposition? How should we respond? Certainly, we should pray and remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. Two great lessons we learn there from Nehemiah. Pray and remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. But in this new covenant era, how should we pray? How should we remember the Lord? I want us to revisit the prayer of Nehemiah in verses 4 and 5. Though it is disturbing in what it asks for, it's disturbing. You should know that God answered it. God answered it. What Nehemiah prayed for would happen. Just not in the way Nehemiah thought. God would not turn insults back onto Israel's enemies. No. He would instead turn those insults back onto his son. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Matthew 27, 29. God would not give Israel's enemy, enemies over to the Jews as plunder. No, he would give his son over to the Jewish authorities. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Luke 22, 22, 4 through 6. God would not curse Israel's enemies. He would instead curse his son. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. God's presence protected Nehemiah from his enemies. But he would remove his presence from Jesus. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46. Do you see now? It was God's son whose head would be dashed against the rocks. It was God's baby boy. You and I will receive fierce opposition in this life. Especially as we try to rebuild. And in the coming years, I think Christians will face a level of mockery and hatred never seen before in this country. I think that's coming, and I think it's coming very soon. And so... How should we respond? How should we respond? 
Just like Nehemiah, Jesus faced harsh opposition and ridicule. And just like Nehemiah, he responded with prayer. But rather than praying for their ridicule to turn back on their heads, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is our example. Jesus is our example. But the only way you can respond like that is when you realize Jesus was talking about you. Jesus was talking about you. You weren't on Jesus' side. Neither was I. No. We were part of the crowd shouting, crucify him. Crucify him. And as your sin drove the nails deeper and deeper into his wrists, Jesus loved you. Jesus prayed for you. Jesus died for you. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 So when we face opposition, let us pray. When we are discouraged and beat down, let us pray. Let us pray and remember the Lord. The Lord who was despised, who was ridiculed, who was mocked, who made himself of no reputation, who emptied himself of all of his glory, who willingly took the wrath of God on a Roman cross. Let us remember the Lord who is so great and awesome that with his own blood he turned us, his enemies, into his beloved children. Let's pray. Father, what can we possibly say about Jesus? What can we say? Father, that cross is what we deserved. Your wrath is what we earned. And yet, you gave us Jesus. You gave us your precious Son to be dashed against the rocks. It should have been us. It should have been us. And so we pray now and we remember. We remember, Father, your Son. 
who died for us and who died for those who would ridicule us. To turn his enemies into his friends. <laughs> what a savior. What a savior. And Father, I know there are so many here dealing with different difficulties, different forms of opposition. Please, Father, give them your spirit so that he will show them Jesus, so that he will show them the cross where your precious son took our place. <laughs> what a savior. Please, Father, please, Father, Show us Jesus. Show us Jesus.